So I'll move on. So good evening. My name is Peter Hine. I'm the president of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York. Welcome to our Talmadge Day meeting. And uh, we are delighted to welcome all of you who are here in person, as well as the many who are participating virtually through our webcast. Frederick Samuel Talmadge was a founding member and the second president of our society. It was his generous bequest following his death in 1904 that provided the funds that our society used to purchase and restore Francis Tavern over 100 years ago in the early 1900s. And that's why we commemorate Frederick Samuel Talmage's birthday each year around the date of his birthday, which was January 24, 1824 with our annual Talmage Day meeting. This year is the centennial of his birthday. So we're gonna start with the invocation from our society's chaplain, Father Christopher Cullen. Let us pray. Almighty God, your psalmist writes, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. We ask you to bless us and our celebration this evening. We are grateful for the life and service of Frederick Samuel Talmage, and we commend him to your mercy. Fill us with a spirit of gratitude as we contemplate your providence in the life of our nation and in the life of this republic. Lord of history, we ask you to sustain this republic, to bless its president and all its officers, especially those who stand guard, members of the armed forces throughout the world and thus serve the common good and their fellow citizens. We ask all this in your sacred name, amen. Now I would like to recognize our registrar, Scott Jeffrey, who will lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. Scott? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic which is in us, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We are here in the Davis Flag Gallery, and one benefit of being in the Flag Gallery is there are many, many flags on all walls. So uh, uh, thank you, uh, Scott. Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York was instituted in 1876 by grandchildren of those who by military or civil service achieved American independence during the Revolutionary War. And we seek to perpetuate the memory of those patriots. A brief word about upcoming events. We will host our annual George Washington birthday open house here in the museum on Saturday, February 17 and Sunday, February 18 noon to 5 p.m. 
our annual George Washington Birthday Ball, which honors George Washington and raises funds for this Francis Tavern Museum, will be Friday evening, February 23, at the Metropolitan Club. Tickets are available through the Francis Tavern Museum website, and uh, I believe we'll, we'll attempt to post a link uh, uh, for the uh, webcast participants, but everyone can look to the Francis Tavern Museum website, just type in George Washington Birthday Ball Francis Tavern. Following the ball on February 24, Saturday, there will be a special tour for ball participants. And then on Sunday, February 25, our society holds its annual church service at the Church of the Incarnation, where we will commemorate the birthday of George Washington and remember members of our society who have passed away during the past year. And additional information about the church service is available on the Sons of the Revolution a website, uh, also information about the Dutch Street brunch that follows. I'd like to recognize uh, members of our executive committee who are here tonight, Owen Cloder, our secretary, Mark Kopinski, our treasurer, our registrar, Scott Jeffrey is here. You heard him with the pledge. Our chaplain, Father Christopher Cullen, who you have met already. Then board members, Ted Andrews, Alan Borst, Charles Burley, Chester Burley, Paul Dietrich, Calvin Ramsey, Justin Tessier, Craig Weaver, who's also co-chairman of our Museum and Art Committee. And also Renee Witterstetter, who's a member of our Museum and Art Committee and who curated the special exhibit that is next door in the Messick Gallery, Cloak Crusader, George Washington in Comics and Popular Culture. On turning to past presidents, uh, we are joined here tonight by Bob McKay, a past president who continues to play an active role in several of our committees and who has shown great leadership in his generosity to the society, including as lead donor to the 250th anniversary campaign. Also, Ambrose Richardson, my immediate predecessor as president, who continues to serve as co-chairman of the Museum and Art Committee, and is also now the General Secretary, General Society, Sons of the Revolution, our national organization, and president of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. And I'd like to as well recognize members of the Long Room Plan Giving Society here tonight, including Bob McKay and Craig Weaver. And that society recognizes those who have provided, and also Scott Jeffrey, uh, that society who recognizes those who have provided uh, through planned gifts of 100,000 or more for the society. We are also pleased to have friends from other societies president, uh, Jim Kaplan, who is the co-founder and past president of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association, and Abby Suckle, vice president of LMHA, and also a number of members of the Battle of Brooklyn chapter of the Sons of the American Revolution, I believe David Peters and Norman Gobin, among others, are here. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for coming. Also, Richard Sage uh, uh, from the SAR is here as well. 
Uh, finally, I'd like to recognize the important work of our staff members, Scott Dwyer, our executive director, who continues to do yeoman's work. Uh, Melissa Lauer is our new education and public programs coordinator, and uh, she is in the back of the room. And, and uh, Scott and Melissa, why don't you uh, stand up so that you can be recognized? And Shelby Carr, I believe you met on your way in, who is our SRNY membership manager. So at this time, is Owen Cloder here? So if Owen is not here, we're going to defer this to uh, the end of the meeting. Uh, we want to recognize a new member who I believe is present tonight, uh, but we'll wait until Owen is here for that. So as I said at the outset, we're here to commemorate the centennial of the birthday of Frederick Samuel Talmage. He was the great grandson, or the grandson, I should say, the grandson of Benjamin Talmage, who you may recognize as Washington's spymaster. Frederick Samuel Talmage was one of 13 founders and incorporators of our society. He was the second president of the society. For a number of years in the late 1800s, the Sons of the Revolution had attempted to acquire France's tavern uh, to save it from the wrecking ball as uh, development was beginning to occur in lower Manhattan. And that became possible in 1904 when the owners of the property finally agreed to sell. Frederick Samuel Talmage's last official act as president was to affix his signature to the contract to purchase Francis Tavern. And it was because of his very generous bequest, as I've mentioned, that our society was able to purchase and restore the tavern to its 18th century appearance. So on December 4, 1907, on the anniversary of Washington's farewell to his officers in our long room, Francis Tavern was able to open as a museum and a restaurant, uses that continue to this day. So I'd like to ask you to join me. Not all of us have glasses, but if you have a glass, raise a glass. Otherwise, just join me in a salute to Frederick Samuel Tammy. Frederick Tavern. So with that, uh, I'd like to now introduce our guest speaker, Mr. Eric Schnitzer, who will speak on the subject of the ninth of the seventh, the seventeen seventy seven Saratoga campaign, and uh, in speaking may surprise us by debunking some of the common myths that surround that campaign. Uh, Eric is a historian with unparalleled knowledge of the Saratoga campaign. For more than twenty years, he served as an interpreter and historian at the Saratoga National Historical Park, which occupies much of the ground on which those battles were fought in 1777. Recently, Eric collaborated with the celebrated military history artist, Dan Troiani, to publish a richly illustrated book on the campaign to Saratoga 1777 that book is on sale here tonight. I don't know if we have some on the table and uh, maybe we could just, Chester, if you could just raise one, uh, uh, great. 
So it's a, it's a great book. Uh, you can purchase it uh, after the talk. Uh, Eric will be happy to inscribe uh, it for you. The Saratoga campaign, of course, played a critical role in the fight for American independence. Indeed, each year, the Lower Manhattan Historical Association commemorates the battles of Saratoga and Yorktown, either at Trinity Church or at uh, St. Paul's Chapel. Our Sons of the Revolution Color Guard participates in those annual commemorations. So we're delighted to welcome both Eric and his wife, uh, Jenna, uh, to Francis Tavern Museum. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for speaking to us this evening. Uh, first, uh, I, or I, before, before you speak, I'll give our standard disclaimer, which is the views of the speakers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Sons of the Revolution, the state of New York, or its Francis Tavern Museum. So if you have something controversial to say, we're covered. So uh, please, please join me in providing a warm welcome to Eric Schnitzer. Uh, thank you, uh, President Hind, uh, for that very kind introduction. And what a great honor it is to be here at Francis Tavern Museum to be able to present to all of you here in person and virtually as well. Uh, as I understand it, uh, this is being recorded and uh, presented virtually. So uh, indeed, uh, uh, this program is called Revelations, Don Triani's Campaign to Saratoga, 1777. If we were to look at the historiography of the Northern Campaign of 1777, the Battles of Saratoga within the past 10 years, there's probably half a dozen books that have been published about this subject, the Battles of Saratoga, the, the so-called Burgoyne Campaign, um, and other books, maybe another dozen, that have tangential relationships with the campaign, such as biographical uh, studies that have been published about people like Benedict Arnold, who, of course, had a major part in this uh, uh, story. So there's a lot of material that's been uh, produced on this subject. So, of course, the question comes to mind, really, Another book about this? What do we need it for? Are you just going to rehash the same old story that's been told so often? And indeed, that is not the case with our book here. Uh, I am going to go through the history of the Northern Campaign of 1777 in the briefest way possible. I'll give myself just a couple minutes. Uh, this simplistic description I'm going to give belies the complexity of everything that occurred. Uh, if you're interested in further details, I have a, uh, an idea for a great book you can read. <laughs> uh, but suffice to say that at the end of 1776, the British thought that they had the rebels, as they called us, uh, at an end, that our uh, self-determined United States of America was, was done for, and 1777 would be the year that the revolution was crushed. Uh, now, the British had quite the surprise at Trenton and Princeton, uh, late 1776, early 1777, and so they had to adjust their thinking a little bit, but believe it or not, they were still rather sanguine about the prospect of victory in 1777, and if necessary, maybe it will take into 1778, but surely not longer than that. 
Uh, so the British command in North America was divided into two. You had General Sir William Howe. There he is uh, depicted there. He's commander in chief of British forces in the 13 colonies, Nova Scotia and the two Floridas, not Canada. That's not his domain. And he comes up with a plan that he proposes to government in which he is going to capture Philadelphia. Well, the commander-in-chief in Canada, specifically called the province of Quebec, and the territories dependent thereon was Sir Guy Carleton, not depicted up here. And Carleton uh, uh, delivered, uh, or had rather sent a uh, um, uh, his proposal for the upcoming campaign. Uh, the king didn't like it, though. Instead, the king approved a plan proposed by Carleton's underling, his second-in-command, General John Burgoyne. He liked Burgoyne's plan, and Burgoyne's plan called for most of the Canada army to come out of Canada, invade upstate New York, and capture Albany. Capture Albany. From there, Albany would, the, would be the, the, the new seat of operations of the transplanted Canada army. And General Howe, who was overall commander-in-chief within that realm, would then determine what Burgoyne's army would do next. The further operations of Burgoyne's army would be determined, of course, upon uh, the situation at hand. Uh, would Burgoyne's army be marched down to the city of New York? Possibly. Would Burgoyne's army be sent to the Connecticut River Valley or maybe to Boston, maybe join up with the British garrison in Rhode Island? They were going to decide on one of these options. And so both campaigns set off. Burgoyne comes out of Canada. Howe goes off to take Philadelphia by sea, which was not originally something he was supposed to do, but he realized during the wintertime forage war that uh, traversing New Jersey was not an option, so he had to circumvent it instead. Uh, this is something that really riled up Burgoyne because he rather did expect some, quote, cooperation from General Howe. This cooperation now could not occur because General Howe was completely removing himself from a land-based operation to a sea-based operation. What's worse is that General Howe fully expected to go up uh, uh, the Delaware, but finding that uh, insurmountable, he had to go up the Chesapeake Bay instead, which took him out of communications even further. Burgoyne was very much on his own. So uh, Burgoyne had originally succeeded very nicely. He took Fort Ticonderoga, Mount Independence, fought the American rear guard at Hubberton, at Fort Anne, a skirmish at Skeensboro. The original American Northern commander, Philip Schuyler, there he is right there. Philip Schuyler's Northern army, the American army is retreating as Burgoyne advances. Um, and uh, it doesn't go well for the American uh, forces at all until August. August, things start to change. Um, although Howe has gone off to combat George Washington's army, of course, in the Battle of Brandywine, eventually the British do succeed in, in capturing um, Philadelphia before the end of uh, September is over. As for Burgoyne, he plunges further south. He uh, is informed that Howe is not going to support him in any way, shape, or form, but he continues uh, uh, regardless. Uh, he does uh, think, Burgoyne, that he should get supplies. He needs supplies to better sustain his army. He sends out a detachment toward Bennington, Vermont. They don't make it. They're crushed, thanks to militia commanded by John Stark of New Hampshire. It's a great American victory. Also, word comes in that a secondary British force meant to meet Burgoyne at Albany, they were supposed to advance down the Mohawk Valley, was 
take they took to flight after their failed siege of Fort Schuyler, i.e. Fort Stanwix in modern day Rome, New York. They took to flight in a panicked retreat back to Canada uh, because of rumors that Benedict Arnold was coming with thousands of troops and there was no way they could stop that. So they retreated. Burgoyne, again, you see he's isolated. He's on his own. But his haughtiness gets in the way. He could have retreated, but he didn't. Because after all, he's General John Burgoyne, and he will show those rebels that nothing can stand up against him. So finally, you have the Battles of Saratoga. The first Battle of Saratoga is fought on the 19th of September. The British win the battle, but it's like the Battle of Breed's Hill, Bunker Hill, right? It's a Pyrrhic victory. It just so happens that a day and a half later, this guy here, Sir Henry Clinton, left behind in the city of New York. I can actually say that here in the city of New York. I've never been able to say that during a talk before. That's <laughs> so cool. Uh, Sir Henry Clinton, knowing Burgoyne's situation, sent Burgoyne a coded letter. Uh, and that letter arrived a day and a half after the Battle of Freeman's Farm at where Saratoga Battlefield is now. And Clinton's letter said, hey, General Burgoyne, I got a plan to help you out. How is gone? He's off to Philadelphia. We won't see him anytime soon. But I am going to send 2,000 troops north into the Hudson Highlands and attack Fort Montgomery. And hopefully that will create a diversion in your favor. And the American army that you're facing uh, up uh, at Saratoga uh, is going to split its force in half so as to see to my threat in the south. Burgoyne's response was, quote, do it, my dear friend, directly. And so Burgoyne dug in, set up camp at Saratoga, and for two and a half weeks, waited and waited and waited for this supposed diversion to occur. Now, as for Clinton, he came up just like he promised in early October. He comes up, he attacks Fort Montgomery and Fort Clinton under the command of Brigadier General Clinton, our general, different, you know, you have two Clintons fighting each other, uh, basically. That's George Clinton over there, Sir Henry Clinton here. Unfortunately, our forces are walloped. The British are successful, but it has no effect on Burgoyne's army. No diversion occurs whatsoever. The American army by this point is commanded by Horatio Gates, that's him there. He replaced Philip Schuyler by order of Congress. Now he's in command. He's the guy that uh, Burgoyne is fa uh, facing at Saratoga. Well, Burgoyne realizes, okay, time's running out. I got to get to Albany. I'm going to press forward. Let's give it a go. And on the 7th of October, he sent out a probing force. And that probing force was walloped on the field of battle. So much so that it, it, it is one of the Second Battle of Saratoga on the 7th of October. It is one of the great decisive American victories of the war. Uh, it, its uh, ramifications were phenomenal. So not only do we win tactically, hands down, the British lost over 600 to our 150, uh, killed, captured, wounded. Uh, but uh, the British, after this battle, had to retreat. They had no choice. But where did they go? They retreated as far as they could, a full 10 miles north, and they ended up surrendering at Saratoga. This marked the first time in world history that a British army ever surrendered. A British army had never surrendered in the history of the world. I kid you not. So, uh, and isn't that cool? This painting is in the rotunda of the United States Capitol. You, you may have seen it yourselves. Um, it is, of course, uh, uh, commemorating the surrender of General Burgoyne, and there's Horatio Gates. 
there's some other principal players, such as Colonel Daniel Morgan of Virginia, who commanded the Corps of Riflemen in the Battles of Saratoga. Now, when Burgoyne surrendered, marking the first ever British Army surrender in world history, you can imagine a few heads in Europe were turned, and King Louis XVI was elated about this victory. In fact, Ben Franklin wrote to Congress uh, in December of 1777 after he hearing about the word of Burgoyne's surrender and word spreading in France. He said, our victory over the British at Saratoga is being treated by the French as if it was their own victory over the British. It's not that the, uh, the the French were trying to appropriate the victory, not at all, but they were already seeing us as allies, right? This is before the official Franco-American alliance of February 1778. Now, when we look at that Franco-American alliance of 1778, you now have war between Britain and France. Then Spain enters the war as allies of the French in 1779. Um, uh, places that are marked in orange are locations where the Spanish were fighting uh, against the um, uh, the British. And also um, uh, here we have in blue, this is where the French are fighting against the British. The Netherlands gets involved because Great Britain declares war on the Netherlands in uh, 1780. The Sultanate of Mysore that you see all of these kind of brownish colored uh, uh, dots. Sultanate of Mysore declares war on the Honorable East India Company in 1780. War spreads throughout the world. And all of this piled up against Britain is going to be a major factor as to why the British eventually sue for peace after Cornwallis surrenders at Yorktown, the second ever British army to surrender in world history. Uh, the, the British aren't going to extricate themselves successfully after that. And so they have to sue for peace. The war ends in our favor. Obviously, this is a very simplistic explanation, but the impact of the diffusion of British forces throughout their imperial realm uh, cannot be underestimated as to how it is that they eventually had to uh, end the war in our favor. And the United States, of course, is recognized by our enemy. Now, you're looking at a picture, a photograph of Don Troiani. After all, this book that we put together is called Don Troiani's Campaign to Saratoga, 1777. Don is the brains behind the project. He's the famous guy, and he's the phenomenal military artist. Uh, certainly, you've seen his artworks online or in museums. You might own some yourselves uh, or in books, etc. It's just a, a phenomenal painter. And he called me up. We were friends, right? He called me up one day and he goes, I want to write a book about Saratoga, uh, put together a book about Saratoga. And I want you to write it, he says to me. Now, I had to think about that for two seconds. I said, yes, please. <laughs> it's, of course, quite an honor to, to be asked by uh, Don to do this. Uh, he, of course, wanted the book to be uh, uh, full of his artwork, his paintings, artifacts, photographs of artifacts, things in public museums, private collections, etc. cetera, uh, accurate text and identifications. I don't know about you, but nothing drives me crazier than when I read a, a history, a military history, and I'm reading, and, and they give somebody the wrong rank, you know? I hate that so much. You know, somebody's a colonel and they call him like a, a, a major or something. It drives me nuts. So Don knows that I'm very keen on that kind of accuracy. I'm German, what can I say? 
<laughs> Lots of details and quotes from primary sources. Uh, Don and I, and, and so many of you, of course, uh, know that the backbone of research and history is based on primary sources. And so we want to make sure that this book is just completely overflowing with original quotes from the participants themselves, rather than my own rehash of what it is that they're saying. You can read their own words for yourself in many cases. Don's paintings uh, are, are second to none when it comes to uh, a, a level of great artistry and accuracy uh, with regard to 18th century warfare in America all the way up through into the Civil War in the 19th century. And you see that Don does a lot of single figure studies. Here's a continental soldier from Colonel Thomas Marshall's 10th Massachusetts Regiment. There's a private soldier from the 62nd Regiment of Foot, a red coat, as you see. This guy is interesting. He's wearing a green coat with red trim. He carries a French musket. And you might think, well, he must be an American. He's actually a French Canadian a militiaman who's been drafted into service by the governor of Canada to support Burgoyne's army during its invasion of upstate New York. Yeah, they were forced to serve. Uh, Burgoyne's army, you know, you know, the Redcoats. And yes, there were Germans and others too. There were also French Canadians, uh, as you see, dressed like this, armed uh, with, with uh, French, old French guns. Here we have women and children. We remember the ladies, as Abigail Adams tells us. Indeed, uh, she was right. Uh, Don's uh, paintings include women. There are uh, women depicted in the various artworks where appropriate, and of course in the text as well. Uh, we do not uh, forget the fact that these military forces had women and children with them. And to ignore that fact is, is crazy. Why would we do that? Of course, they're part of the story. Uh, uh, American Indians, the indigenous people from a variety of nations stretching from the Haudenosaunee of uh, our own uh, state of New York all the way to the Great Lakes, uh, the Winnebago's, for example, the Ottawa, uh, the Seven Nations of Canada, uh, the Abenaki, the Huron, etc., etc. Uh, they were incredible amounts and variety of um, different kinds of indigenous people who served on both sides. In, in this Northern campaign of 1777. Uh, here we have a German soldier. Uh, typically we call them Hessians. Uh, this one happens to be from what was called Herzog von Braunschweig, the Duchy of Brunswick. But there were also indeed factual Hessians from Grafschaft Hessen-Hanau, uh, serving with the British, uh, certainly. And here we have a continental soldier uh, and you see that he is a black man because I think you know, especially from the exhibit I saw here earlier today, that indeed the Continental Army and the militia of uh, in the army at this time in the war was nearly fully integrated. You had black men fighting shoulder to shoulder with white men. Uh, you don't get that again until the mid 20th century. Uh, but indeed, you'll have Continental regiments, militia regiments, with black men fighting alongside white men. And uh, they too uh, will fight in battle and, and many of them die, sadly. I uh, wrote a biography recently, a very short biography because there's not much known about him, sadly. Prince Douglas of Hancock, Massachusetts. It's in the very extreme Western part of Massachusetts, right on the New York border. Um, he was an enslaved man and he joined the Continental Army probably because his um, enslaver had been drafted because there was a draft in effect uh, by the states. The states initiated drafting policies, authorized the towns to do it. And so uh, what probably happened is his enslaver was drafted and, and the guy said, no, I'm not going. I'm going to send 
Prince Douglas in my stead. So Prince Douglas is forced to serve in the army. We know he was enslaved and he died. He was killed in the Battle of Freeman's Farm, the first battle of Saratoga, fighting for the independency of the very nation that enslaved him. Uh, here we have a painting, last but not least, depicting uh, um, the march of American troops on their way to Freeman's Farm. Specifically, you're looking at Daniel Morgan's Corps of Virginia, Pennsylvania riflemen. There's Daniel Morgan right there on horseback. And I think uh, Chester's here in the audience. Uh, there he is, Richard Butler. Richard Butler, Lieutenant Colonel of the 1st Pennsylvania Regiment, who was Morgan's second in command uh, during the expedition um, up to join the Northern Army to fight against the British at Saratoga. So these paintings are just wonderful pieces, and the book is, is chock full of them. Artifacts as well. Uh, many of these artifacts are on display in various museums, but most are not. Most of the artifacts in this book are either in private collections and just typically aren't seen, or they're in museum collections that aren't on display. Uh, so uh, there are a variety. I won't go through all of them, but here we have a British button, an American canteen. And these are, are not things that are just generically of the type from the war, but rather things with a specific provenance to the Northern Campaign of 1777. This canteen, for example, was actually carried by a Connecticut militiaman in the battles of Saratoga. This grenadier cap uh, was on the head of a Brunswick, i.e. a German, uh, a so-called Hessian, uh, in the Battle of Bennington. And the wearer was either killed or captured. And his cap was then gifted to the state of Massachusetts, along with other artifacts from the battle, by John Stark himself, as a thanks to the state for them having sent militia. Yes, uh, Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts, uh, because they had militia presence in the Battle of Bennington, which was fought in New York, all received gifts. New York didn't get any because New York had no militia in the battle, in the, even though the battle was fought in New York. It's a head scratcher, but it's true. <laughs> so now we come to revelations. Um, in this book, as I've said, Don wanted accurate text. And one of my uh, uh, interests, I guess, in the Northern Campaign of 1777 is myth busting. Myth busting. We all know myths, right? You read books, you watch movies, and, and artwork, etc. And you, there, there are myths on display. Constantly, we read about the myths. And it does best, I think, to try to get to the truth of these myths. I'm not saying everything is mythical. Obviously, there's a lot of facts out there. But the question is, how do you know, right? How do you know what's a myth and what's not? And the answer is, you got to research. Sometimes the myths are very obvious, sometimes they're not. Let me give you a very quick example, and this is one that we call out in the book. This is General John Burgoyne. The original painting by Sir Joshua Reynolds is in the Frick. Uh, I, I've seen it myself, and I'm sure many of you have as well. It's about that size, maybe slightly smaller. It's a phenomenal portrait. General John Burgoyne. Can anybody tell me what his nickname was? Gentleman Johnny. Except it wasn't. It wasn't. Every book will tell you that. I understand it. Look them up on Wikipedia. Read even the the, the newest books on on the, the you know the the Northern Campaign of seventeen seventy seven. They will tell you, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne. 
I swear to you, it's not true. It sounds impossible, I know, but I swear to you, it's not true. Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne formed the title of a biography on General Burgoyne, published in 1927, 150 years after his surrender. That is the first time you will ever, in any source, ever, secondary, primary, doesn't matter, find that uh, phrase. Um, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne. That was not his nickname. Now, he had other nicknames. I mentioned one of them in the book. Uh, Horace Walpole referred to Burgoyne as Burgoyne the Pompous, which I think is very apt. <laughs> so that is a 1777 nickname. He was also called General Elbow Room. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, I swear to you, it is not one of his nicknames. There is no documentation for it. That nickname was made up to create the title of the book. That sounds crazy, but I swear it's true. So it's things like this that we always have to be on the lookout for. And of course, now you got to question everything, right? At least, you know, when you're the author, the historian, you got to question everything. And it's like, well, what else isn't true? Allow me to show you. This is a photograph of Lake Champlain. Lake Champlain is flowing north into Canada. This is the Ticonderoga Peninsula. This is the Mount Independence Peninsula. This is uh, Vermont over here. So north is kind of over here. South is over here. This in the foreground, it might be a little hard to see in the photograph, but oh, in the foreground is a mountaintop. Mount Defiance, it's called. Has anybody ever been there? Mount Defiance overlooking Fort Ticonderoga. There's Fort Ticonderoga, the reconstructed fort on the original site, indeed. There's a cannon there. And on Mount Defiance, you go up to the top of it, you drive up to the top. There it is. They got a cannon, or they should have two, I think. Uh, cannons on top of Mount Defiance. And you, uh, you're given a tour, and they'll tell you the story. And I bet you've read this before, or you've heard about it before, if you've been given a tour. I remember when I was a little kid getting a tour. This is what we were told. The British brought cannons on top of Mount Defiance. And when the Americans saw the cannons... They elected to retreat with the army that night under cover of darkness because the Americans knew the jig was up. Does anybody ever remember hearing something like that? Sure, sure. Uh, in fact, if you go to Mount Independence, they have an entire exhibit devoted to this story. There's a modern painting depicting Ticonderoga, Mount Independence, British cannon, Royal Artillery, looking over the hapless Americans below them, ready to fire. Um, and that night, the Americans retreat because, like I said, they knew that uh, there was no way they could stand against this British invasion. Again, this is not a Don Troyani painting, but this was commissioned by uh, the state of Vermont to depict what this might have looked like in 1777. In fact, uh, the man who uh, gives us the famous quote, this is Major General William Phillips, uh, quoting from over there, uh, the British engineer, Lieutenant Twiss, studied it, Sugar Hill. Sugar Hill is uh, synonymous with Mount Defiance. Mount Defiance, Sugar Hill, it's the same thing. Uh, carefully. And reported that he had discovered to the British generals, Fraser and Phillips. The latter officer, this guy here, William Phillips, was a man of quick decision and prompt action and declared that, quote, where a goat can go, a man can go. And where a man can go, he can haul a gun. Anybody ever hear that before? Sure. 
It's kind of a famous uh, thing in the annals of, of, of the historiography of the Northern Campaign of 1777. In fact, when I was uh, when I was a little kid, I swear this is true, getting that tour, this is probably 30 years ago now. No, more than that. Yeah. Oh, boy. Time. Uh, yeah. Over 30 years ago, Ticonderoga being taught this. I remember I raised my hand and I said, I got a question. And I, I legit didn't know the answer because I was kind of confused by something. I said, if the British brought those cannons on top of Mount Defiance and the Americans retreated later that night, why didn't the British shoot their cannons when they brought them up to the top of the mount? Sounds reasonable, right? Uh, I was told that, well, that's because the British forgot the ammunition. It took them time to get the ammunition up there. And by the time the ammunition was there, the Americans had all gone because the the the, the British had been duped into thinking that, uh, you know, they, they'd be able to cannonade the Americans. And, and everybody laughed, as you did. And I laughed. I thought, oh, OK, I didn't know, you know, one way or the other. So where does this come from? A kid's book published in the 1890s. That's where that comes from. I, again, I swear to you, this is true. It's from a children's book published in the 1890s. That is where the quote comes from. That is where the concept comes from. Now, let's look at the primary sources themselves. General Sinclair, this is, I, I should say, this is a uh, tra partial transcript from the actual minutes of the meeting of the American commanding officers at Fort Ticonderoga when they were considering to uh, what, what they should do because the British were surrounding them uh, and they had to do something. So General Sinclair represented to the council that as there is every reason to believe that the batteries of the enemy are ready to open upon the Ticonderoga side, more on that in a minute, and that the camp is very much exposed to their fire. And as there is also reason to expect an attack upon Ticonderoga and Mount Independence at the same time, he desired their opinion about what to do. So he's asking this, you know, Arthur Sinclair's in command at Ticonderoga. He's asking his, his principal officers, what should we do? This is the situation we're facing. How do we deal with it? Now, this is a wonderful map drawn up in, uh, by a German officer in 1777 during uh, the period of the siege. There's Ticonderoga, there's Mount Independence, there's the, the bridge, the footbridge that connected the two. These are the British forces over here. These are where they're setting up their batteries, ready to cannonade the old French lines, where most of the American army was garrisoned on the Ticonderoga Peninsula. This is Mount Defiance, i.e. Sugar Hill. You see it called Sugar Hill here. It's quite a mount. I don't see any cannons up there. I don't see any presence up there whatsoever because there was none. I'll show you. In the journal of the commander of the Royal Regiment of Artillery with Burgoyne, uh, he, he wrote, and again, it's a private journal. He says, on the 5th of July, this evening, sent off two medium 12-pounders and 60 rounds of ammunition to General Fraser's Corps. At 8 o'clock, sent two gunboats to reconnoiter the enemy camp. So he's giving us a time frame. Those two medium 12-pounders, those were the cannons that the British intended to plop on top of Mount Defiance to hopefully convince the Americans that the, they had to give up. Those were the two cannons. So they were in the process of doing that on the evening of the 5th. Arthur Sinclair met with his generals on the afternoon of the 5th when they talked about what the situation was. There were no cannons on top of Mount Defiance, but the British were trying to make that happen. 
This is now from uh, 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 William Phillips, Burgoyne's second in command, writing to the aforementioned Griffith Williams. The artillery to be landed at daybreak tomorrow morning and are to pursue the route taken by the two medium 12-pounders this evening. So again, you see that those two medium 12-pounders are being deployed on the evening of the 5th of July. Mind you, the Americans evacuated the fort on the night of the 5th of July into the morning of the 6th. And now... Quite a bit here, but uh, this is the all-important quote. This is from General Frazier, one of Burgoyne's generals, writing to a friend of his uh, 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 about a week later. In the afternoon of the 5th of July, when Arthur Sinclair and his officers were meeting about what they should uh, do, I determined to visit the hill. He's talking about Mount Defiance. Mr. Twist, the engineer, went along with me. I had no guide. I took the bearings by means of an excellent compass and undertook to pilot the party. I returned to camp that evening where I found the generals. It was then determined to use every possible expedition to get cannon to the top of the Sugar Hill. If other circumstances had not prevented it, two 12-pounders would have been there on the evening of the 6th. The Americans evacuated on the evening of the 5th into the morning of the 6th. There was never a point where the Americans were in Fort Ticonderoga or Mount Independence and the British had cannons on top of Mount Defiance. It never happened. Mind you, the British did eventually get a gun up onto the top of Mount Defiance, but the Americans had already withdrawn. No cannons on top of Mount Defiance ever scared the Americans away. And so this is a, yet another example of kind of a, a new information, a revelation, quashing old stories based upon lies uh, that this book uh, thrives on. Lastly, I'd like to look at the death of Jane McRae. So I'm not going to talk about the death of Jane McRae itself, her, you know, her, her demise or, or how it happened or the details. I do certainly address it in the book. And if you want to read more about that uh, or ask me later, please, please feel free. Uh, but I instead want to talk about a myth that has uh, developed over time regarding the effects of her death. Now, what is, uh, is that we've been told? Well, Jane McRae, a royalist woman, was killed by indigenous people, Ottawa's specifically, we know what nation they came from, and uh, allied with Burgoyne, and that when she was killed, word spread, and Americans were enraged, and the militia rose up for vengeance to avenge her death. Or, or, or they rose up saying, well, if these... Uh, people serving with Burgoyne's army will kill one of their own, a royalist woman, what will they do to us, right? Sounds logical in a way, maybe. So militia, like this guy here, are going to pour into the camp because uh, uh, they're, they're going to make sure that we are protected from Burgoyne's Indian allies. That's the story. Want to bet it? <laughs> true or not true? Well, it isn't true at all. Allow me to show you. Here we have General Philip Schuyler, commander of the Northern Army, facing off Burgoyne. He wrote this letter to George Washington two days after Jane McRae was killed. He said, the militia that are with uh, me are daily diminishing 
Oh, wait, 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 wait. If Jane McCrae was killed on the 26th of July, found by the Americans, and uh, honestly, her body was displayed and people came in the marquee where her body was laid out on a table because they were you know, making note of her wounds and, 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 and not just her, but also a lieutenant from the 1st New York Regiment named Tunis Van Vechten. Um, and, and, and word spread like wildfire in the American camp. Oh yeah, everybody wrote about it, talked about it. It was a big deal. How is it that militia are then choosing to leave? I mean, if, if this is going to be a motivating factor to get militia to join the American Northern Army for vengeance or something else, why are militia leaving, as Schuyler says? Well, he says that uh, they're in the process of leaving, and I shall not have 500 left. And although I've entreated this state, New York, and the eastern states to send up a reinforcement of them, yet doubt much if any will come up, especially from the eastern states, where the spirit of malevolence knows no bounds, and I am considered as a traitor. Yeah, the New Englanders did not like Philip Schuyler. I, I talk about it a, a bit in the book. Uh, one of the shocking journal entries uh, was from a Baptist chaplain uh, for, for Nixon's brigade with the Northern Army, Hezekiah Smith. And uh, it's a wonderful journal because he tells us everything on a daily basis, you know, the sermons he's giving and what passages he's reading from the Bible on, on various Sundays. But he had some really harsh things to say about Philip Schuyler. He did not like him at all. And he wasn't the only one, believe me. Uh, basically, a lot of the New Englanders blamed Philip Schuyler for the retreat, the constant retreat of the American Northern Army. And some the, the rumors in camp were that Schuyler was even bought off by the British. It's ridiculous, but you know how rumors are, right? So let's see what else Philip Schuyler tells us. Now, this is August 8th. August 8th. This is a couple weeks after Jane McRae's death, or a week and a half plus. Yesterday, the time expired of a regiment of continental troops, which had been engaged for a 12 month in the state of New Hampshire, and they marched off, nor could I persuade on one to remain, although I offered $20 bounty if they would engage until the 1st of December. The militia will follow those that remained with the Northern Army uh, about Sunday or Monday next. Philip Schuyler is lamenting that the one Continental Regiment of his army that had a sunset date that summer, uh, Colonel Long's Continental Regiment out of New Hampshire, they were a one-year service uh, unit. They were raised in August of 76, and now they hit their sunset date. Schuyler tried, begged them to stay for a half year, $20 bounty. Continental soldiers were getting $20 bounties to sign up for the three years, you know, at this time. Uh, and he's offering them 20 bucks for half a year's service. They, at plus wages, they want nothing to do with it. Jane McRae be damned. They couldn't care less. They wanted to go home. Their term of service had expired. Now, when we look at Philip Schuyler and his, his, his reaching out to the state governments, because ultimately it's up to the states to send out their militia or not. The states have, of course, uh, complete control of their militias. Governors of states are the captain generals of their militias, like uh, Jonathan Trumbull Sr. there of Connecticut. Uh, there were 15 letters exchanged between Schuyler and Trumbull regarding the deployment of Connecticut militia to join the Northern Army. Nine of them followed uh, the 26th of July, the date Jane McRae was killed. There's not a single reference to Jane McRae's death or the death of civilians that got in the way of Burgoyne's army or anything like that. 
Trumbull did order two-month militia service uh, service militia to join the Northern Army on August the 13th, quote, in compliance with the pressing request of General Schuyler. Basically, Schuyler had been badgering and badgering and badgering uh, Trumbull to send up militia on long-term service, two-month service, and eventually he acquiesced. But it took a lot of work, and it was not because of Jane McRae. It had nothing to do with her death. At New, uh, let's look at New Hampshire briefly. There is no correspondence between Schuyler and the New Hampshire Assembly nor the Committee of Safety referring to Jane McRae's death, again, or the death of uh, civilians broadly uh, as Burgoyne advanced. Uh, Stark's brigade, that's General John Stark who fought at the Battle of Bennington, and his New Hampshire militia was activated on the 18th of July. This is before Jane McRae was killed and certainly before anybody in New Hampshire had heard anything about it in the newspapers. Um, had nothing to do whatsoever about Jane McRae. New York, no correspondence between Schuyler, who's begging and pleading from our governor, George Clinton, to call out the militia at all, nothing. In fact, finally, when Clinton does order three-month militia to join the Northern Army, he does so before he learns of Jane McRae's demise. And uh, according to his orders, it's due to the needed operations, or it's due in reaction to the operations of the enemy against this state to the northward, not because... The British are killing women and children. No, it's because the British are invading and we got to stop it. That's all. That's all it takes. Massachusetts, lastly. No correspondence whatsoever between Schuyler and the Massachusetts General Court referring to Jane McRae's death. The General Court did finally order out long-term service militia to join the Northern Army, quote, uh, due to, quote, General Schuyler's requisition from some part of the militia of the state to reinforce the Northern Army. I promise you, you will not find a single reference to any militia being called out for service, either as a body from the state or individual decisions recorded at the time because of the Indians with Burgoyne and, oh, we have to stop them because they're, they're killing Jane McRae. Not at all. It never happened, at least not in a way that's at all documented because there is no documentation for it. Uh, absolutely. So why do we all think it? Well, that's why Rabble in Arms, Kenneth Roberts' Rabble in Arms, a very popular book published in the 1930s. Uh, the story that um, Kenneth Roberts put together, which was about the Northern Campaign of 1777, focused on Benedict Arnold, gave us tales about Jane McRae's death, enraging Americans convincing them to come out and fight against Burgoyne to stop the barbarities of uh, the butcher, General Burgoyne. Uh, you know, this is how we've all been inculcated in the lie from a secondary source. As for this painting, my gosh, I, you know, I was in middle school in the late 1980s. I remember this in my social studies book. I remember it very clearly. This is John Vanderlyn's uh, depiction of the death of Jane McRae, painted in 1804 as a piece of historic art. It's phenomenal. It's a very early, early uh, uh, history painting uh, that was executed in our new republic. But again, we're inculcated with these images and with fictional accounts like Ravel in Arms uh, to give us the story. And so 
you know, I, I would only say that uh, correlation, meaning the arrival of militia in, let's say, September joining the Northern Army, is not equal to causation, meaning just because militia are arri arriving to join the Northern Army in September doesn't mean it's because of Jane McRae, just because the timing kind of sort of looks like it could have been. But when we look at the primary source evidence, we see very clearly that there was no correlation whatsoever. So the question is, and this is what I have to leave you with, how do you know when you read these books about, let's say, any subject related to the Revolutionary War or something else, how do you know what the truth is? Well, I, I just say, uh, you know, choose carefully. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> By the way, I <laughs> thank you. I should say, I, I forgot I put this in there. This is uh, a Pandora's box being opened as painted by John William Waterhouse, one of my favorite uh, uh, pre-Raphaelite artists. And so, you know, the, these books, these secondary sources are opening Pandora's box for inaccurate information. Um, but uh, unfortunately, that's the way things happen sometimes. But thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Jane McCray was a royalist. Yes. Why would she be, if Jane McCray was a royalist, yeah. why would she be singled out to be uh, sacrificed? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, what happened was um, Burgoyne received a reinforcing wave of about five to 600 new indigenous uh, warriors and chiefs from what were called the far western tribes, quote unquote. Think of the Great Lakes regions. And they arrived uh, in his camp in mid-July. He gave them a speech, at, translated, of course, in various languages. So you have to wonder how well the translators were. I don't know. You know, uh, hopefully they did a good job. Uh, but the British policy, as Burgoyne stated himself, was that they, the British, would pay for prisoners brought into camp. They would pay for scalps if the scalps were taken from the dead, people already dead. They would pay for them. But they would not pay for scalps made by uh, off people who were alive. They wouldn't do it. And so these, these new arrivals went forth. And over the course of days, there were a lot of, they had a lot, engaged in a lot of skirmishes with American forces of the Northern Army. And on the 26th of July, they, the indigenous people and the French Canadians who were with them made a massed attack against the outer uh, settlement of Fort Edward. And one of, they, they picked up a lot of prisoners, soldiers, uh, civilians, including Jane McRae. And so they were bringing her into camp. Unfortunately for us, there were two Indians with her and her and just them isolated. So we don't know exactly what happened, you know. Um, but the report was during an investigation uh, afterward, the British investigated this uh, situation. The investigation concluded that on the way of bringing Jane McRae into the British camp, because they didn't know who she was. They couldn't speak her language. They, they had no idea, but she was a prisoner and they wanted you know money for her because they were going to turn her in alive. There was dispute over whose prisoner she was and who would get the reward. And she was somehow killed in the process. It may have been an accidental killing. It may have been purposeful. She may have been trying to get away and she's running off and something happened. We don't know, but she was killed uh, by one of them. 
Burgoyne, when he learned of this that night, called a council of the Indians. They had a council the following day. He was basically incredibly enraged. Um, and uh, the, 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 the guy, the Ottawa warrior who had killed her, stood up, admitted he had done it, and through translators explained what I had basically told you. And uh, that kind of spelt the end of it, because Burgoyne, who wanted to have the guy executed, was convinced that doing so would, um, shall we say, convince many of those that had just arrived to leave and go back home because they would not stand for that kind of punishment. Um, and so Burgoyne just kind of said, well, okay, but don't do it again. Uh, basically, that's 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 the end result. Um, and, and uh, you know, she was an unfortunate victim of, you know, of this, you know. It seems like a public relations uh, disaster. Yeah, yeah, for Burgoyne, sure. Uh, there's no question that Horatio Gates, when he assumed command of the Northern Army, one of the first things he did was write a letter to General Burgoyne uh, describing what a butcher he is and how dare you employ Indians against uh, uh, us, us Americans and, and this kind of thing. And his a letter to Burgoyne was absolutely meant for public consumption. It was published in newspapers. And what's interesting is that Burgoyne's response, in which he defended himself and explained that, well, you know what, I was going to have the guy executed, but I was convinced that we shouldn't do that because of cultural differences, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the letter, Burgoyne says, hey, Gates, I know that you intend to have your letter published in newspapers. Uh, I expect you to be a gentleman and publish my response to you in kind. And many newspapers actually did publish Burgoyne's response. But absolutely, Gates did intend his letter to be um, in which he described the death of Jane McRae from his perspective. Not that he was there, not that he had first-hand knowledge of what happened, um, but he had some descriptions about what her what her remains looked like. Um, you know, he absolutely intended to use it as propaganda. Yeah, sure. Yeah. If Clinton was using that as as a, a point with Burgoyne, then it had to have been become public knowledge, and it had to maybe have raised the ire of some people for it to still be a subject of conversation. Correct. Yeah. So um, that that Horatio Gates um, published the he didn't publish it, but you know his letters were sent out to publishers, newspaper publishers. Many newspapers published his letter. Uh, in transcript form in their prints. People at home could read about it. They could say, oh my gosh, that's awful. I already didn't like the British. Now I hate them even more. I'm sure that happened. Um, there is zero evidence, however, that anybody read this and they're like, well, I wasn't going to go and join the Northern Army in their uh, dire darkest times during the retreat and in, in the face of British successes, but now I'm going to do so because I want to make sure that our numbers are bolstered. There's no evidence of that. In fact, I, I, I would even argue just the opposite. Um, the very reason why Burgoyne was employing indigenous people is because he knew that they would strike fear in the hearts of many Americans because Americans of the revolutionary generation knew of the stories of the Deerfield massacre in the late uh, 17th century, the Schenectady massacre in the late 17th century, uh, the Saratoga massacre of 1745. They had heard these stories, these stories of Indian and, and French Canadian. Uh, it's not just the Indians doing, you know, it's the French Canadians too. These attacks on civilian communities in New England and in New York had been inculcated in the minds of so many people over the, the generations. 
to fear and, and be afraid of, 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 of Indians when they go to war. And so that's exactly why Burgoyne was using them. He knew what he was doing. He even talked about it. He said that this is why I'm using them um, to, to the British government, you know, when, when he had to explain himself. Um, and so uh, a lot of Americans, I would imagine, didn't want to go and face them. I, I, you know, I wouldn't, you know, uh, it, it's one thing to shoot at a, a redcoat, uh, you know, who's 80 yards away from you. It's another thing to defend yourself against a, a warrior who comes out from behind a tree because he cleverly came up upon you and you had no idea that he was there. It's a very different thing. It's, it's, it's scary. Um, but again, there's really no evidence that anybody joined the Northern Army in reaction to Jane McRae's death, nor is there any evidence that any government called out the militia in reaction to Jane McRae's death or the death of civilians broadly. Wouldn't it be true that Gates used the McRae incident as a huge tool to rally the, the militia against uh, uh, Burgoyne? And when he took over after Haley in August 18, 1777? No, no, it's not. Uh, while uh, Gates did write that letter uh, to Burgoyne, and it was written shortly after he assumed command on the 19th of August from Philip Schuyler, um, you will never find the name Jane McRae mentioned in the Gates papers again. In fact, he doesn't even name her in, in, in the letter that he wrote. Uh, uh, by, you know, he doesn't call her by name. He just describes her. Uh, but when it comes to the militia, as you see in these you know, various excerpts from the, um, uh, the, the orders, the marching orders for the militia from the states, there's no references to Jane McRae. You'll never find a reference from Horatio Gates writing to Governor Trumbull in which he says, come and join us, Jane McRae. You know, uh, the militia had already been called upon, uh, asked, requested by Philip Schuyler. Because again, Philip Schuyler, as you know, he's a Continental Army general. He can only ask the states to bring out their militia. He can't order them. And so in these letters, in all this correspondence, like the ones I quoted here, between himself, Schuyler, and New York, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, those are the four states that he's communicating with, not one refers to Jane McRae. Not one refers, again, broadly to the death of civilians at the hands of Burgoyne's indigenous allies, not one. When Horatio Gates assumes command of the army on the 19th of August, absolutely, soon after that, he does write to Burgoyne about how dare you, you know, employ Indians against us, that kind of thing. And he does describe the death of a young woman. He's clearly talking about Jane McRae, even though he doesn't name her uh, uh, specifically, but he's clearly talking about her. Uh, but that letter was written to Burgoyne. It's not written to Governor Trumbull or, or, or the Massachusetts General Court. Um, and as for the militia that end up joining Horatio Gates uh, and, and the Northern Army, they're not really coming out because Gates is asking them. They're coming out because uh, Schuyler had already badgered them. And once Burgoyne crossed the Hudson River to its western side and cut his communications from Canada, they, the other states, the New England states, fully recognized then and there that Burgoyne was no threat to the Connecticut River Valley, which is what they were terrified of, which is why a reason why they were holding their militia back. You know, Philip Schuyler will blame the Eastern states, the New England states for holding back their militia because as he puts it, their malevolence knows no bounds. Well, it's a little more practical than that, Philip Schuyler. They're very afraid that General Burgoyne 
because they don't know where he's going. We know he was going to Albany, but they were afraid that General Burgoyne was going to gun it for the Connecticut River Valley and states like New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, of course, would need their militia to defend against. They wouldn't want their militia way over in New York with the Northern Army. You know, They would want their militia at home to defend. So once Burgoyne crossed the uh, the Hudson River, uh, the militia that were deployed then from the eastern states to uh, the Northern Army at Saratoga ballooned. Thousands of reinforcements came in at that time. Yeah, my question is about uh, Daniel Morgan's rifleman. Yeah. And it's not about uh, um, Timothy Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I thought it would be, but. <laughs> yeah, uh, now, you mentioned that um, uh, Richard Butler was second in command of Lieutenant Colonel. Now, did he come up with, I know there were some companies from the 8th Pennsylvania at Saratoga. Attached to Morgan. He would in command of the eight. Did he come up with the eight? Okay, so Richard Butler. I this is interesting uh, that you mentioned this. So if you look up uh, Heitman's um, uh, uh, catalog of Continental Army officers in the Revolutionary War, he will tell you that Richard Butler was Lieutenant Colonel of the Eighth Pennsylvania Regiment, but he wasn't. He was the Lieutenant Colonel of the First Pennsylvania Regiment. Um, if if you want, we can correspond. I have the information. I know where the mistake was made. I'd be happy to send that to you. I, I, I was confused by this for a while, too, uh, because Heitman made an error, and I look back in the original records, and I'm like, oh, I see how the mistake was made. Anyway, um, so you're, you're absolutely right. Daniel Morgan's Corps of Riflemen consisted of eight rifle companies. Of those eight companies, five were Virginia companies of officers and men drafted from, let's say, the, the 7th, the 9th, the 11th Virginia regiments and other Virginia regiments. Yeah, right. And then the other three companies were Pennsylvania companies. And they were drawn principally from the 8th Pennsylvania Regiment. In fact, an entire company of Morgan's Corps of Riflemen, an entire company, one of all eight companies, was specifically drawn from officers and men only of the 8th Pennsylvania Regiment, commanded by Captain Van Swearingen. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely the 8th Pennsylvania had a real presence in the battles of Saratoga. Sorry? Sam Brady's father. Oh, is that right? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's true. Neat. I'll, I'll talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. So, so I do. Oh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, so because uh, I grew up hearing stories about Timothy Murphy because yeah. my family's from the Morro Valley. Oh, yeah. And apparently Timothy Murphy was as well. I don't know if this is true, but uh, and I was in the story is that Saratoga, the Battle of Saratoga was won because of Timothy Murphy. I think Arnold or somebody told him that. Told can you give a little bit of shed a little bit of factual information about Timothy Murphy in particular? Absolutely. So yeah, Timothy Murphy was in fact a Pennsylvanian. And he was with one of those three Pennsylvania rifle companies with Daniel Morgan. He was not a New Yorker. He became a New Yorker afterward. After the war, he settled in the Schoharie Valley. Um, but he he himself was from Pennsylvania. So he was in the battles of Saratoga, Timothy Murphy. He was a rifleman. He was in both battles, as were most of the riflemen under Morgan's command. The trick is, did he shoot Simon Fraser? And the answer is, we'll never know. Could it be uh, that he shot Simon Fraser? Absolutely, he could have been the guy. I can give you, if we had time, I might be out of time, I, I don't know, but uh, if you know, we could go, I could give you some... Uh, I could give you some information which suggests that it was Timothy Murphy, but then I can 
go in another line of thought and say, but that also suggests it wasn't Timothy Murphy. It's really hard to say. We just don't know. One of my favorite anecdotes about this, I was at Saratoga one day and in the lobby comes a guy and he's up from Virginia and he said, I'm here to uh, walk the grounds that my ancestor walked. He's the guy that shot General Frazier. And I immediately thought he was descendant of Timothy Murphy. And he goes, who? He, he didn't know. I swear he didn't know. He was a descendant of a guy named James Critchlow, who was a private soldier in the Rifle Corps from Virginia. And according to their family, you know, anecdotes, he's the guy who shot Simon Fraser, James Critchlow. Uh, there's also a guy named Thomas Scott who supposedly shot Simon Fraser. Somebody shot Fraser, <laughs> probably a rifleman. You know, but I got to say, the British, when Frazier was shot, this is actually another myth. When Frazier was shot, the British were already retreating back to camp. That is very thoroughly documented in the original sources. It isn't that Frazier was shot, then the British retreat. The British were already being overwhelmed by Benedict Arnold's massed attack, authorized by Horatio Gates, that the um, you know British were retreating and then Frazier was shot. And then the British, you know, continued their retreat. Um the most original bit of evidence that we have, and I, I quote this in, in the book, in the in one of the endnotes. Uh, by the way, the endnotes are highly annotated. So there's a lot of, uh, the endnotes aren't just like a citation. They have a lot of extra information in them. And this is where I address this particular issue. There was an officer, a British officer, a captain lieutenant by the name of Graham, who surrendered at Yorktown in 1781. And he, in his memoir, talks about that he's a prisoner of the Americans and he's in Virginia. And one night he and his fellow officers, prisoners captured at Yorktown, get to dine with Daniel Morgan. Because Daniel Morgan came into camp and, you know, gentlemen, right, they're all hobnobbing, you know, prisoners and victors alike. And this guy, who was Scottish, he actually, in his memoirs, he says, I asked Colonel Morgan about Simon Fraser who had been shot, you know, four years earlier. And I wanted to know what happened. And according to him, and I, I quote from the entire thing in the book, he says that Morgan told him that in the second battle of Saratoga, Morgan, he, right, he's given the story, he had seen a British officer on horseback and that he told his best shot to shoot that guy. And the guy was shot. You know, it's like, well, okay, first, we don't know for a fact that that was Simon Fraser. It could have been Sir Francis Carr Clark, who was also on horseback, who was also shot, uh, mortally wounded, uh, like Fraser was mortally wounded, except for Sir Francis was actually captured. But he doesn't name who it was that he picked as his best marksman. It's so frustrating. Was it Timothy Murphy? It could have been, sure. Um, there's a wonderful... Um, a uh, corroborating bit of uh, tantalize, uh, tantalizing, I'll say, uh, entry in a journal written by a major of Pennsylvania militia, I believe, uh, in 1779. And he talks about, because he's with the uh, army, and he talks about Timothy Murphy having gone out on a, a scout, and that Timothy Murphy had been presumed captured or killed or something like that. But then Murphy arrived back in camp much to his surprise. And he was like, oh, and he goes in his journal, private journal, right? He's not writing it for, you know, some other purpose. He writes something to the effect of Timothy Murphy is a well-known marksman and has killed a dozen people in this war alone. 
So it's very interesting that this guy who probably doesn't know Timothy Murphy personally is alluding to this idea that Timothy Murphy's a famous guy and that he's a great marksman. But he doesn't say that, oh, yeah, and Timothy Murphy shot Simon Fraser two years ago. You know, Simon Fraser is one of only two British generals in the entire eight-year-long war who was killed or mortally wounded in combat. There were only two of them. We, in our, our the, the Continental Army and the militia, collectively, we lost over half a dozen in combat, mortally wounded or killed. Uh, you know, we hear about the British officers. They're, you know, getting mowed down by our clever marksmen and our clever generals are all, you know, secreted behind, you know, safety zones or something. I don't know. Uh, well, that's certainly not the case. The British lost two general officers, two brigadier generals, one of whom was Fraser. Uh, the other was uh, Brigadier General Agnew in the Battle of uh, Germantown. Um, so, um, yeah, but uh, you'd think that would be notable. You'd think that this guy would have written that in his journal. But maybe he just didn't know, you know, but he knew that Frazier was a good marksman. We don't know. But it's a very tempting uh, source. Absolutely. <laughs> Eric, this has been terrific. Uh, I just have... Two very specific questions. Yes, sir. And then we're going to have a brief presentation to you, a brief presentation to a new member, and then a benediction, and we'll be done. Uh, the two questions, the first is, we honor uh, Horatio Gates every yeah. year yeah. at he's buried at Trinity Church yeah. um, as part of a Saratoga, Yorktown commemoration that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Does he deserve the title Victor of Saratoga or not, in your opinion? I, I think you gave uh, yeah, a, a comment before I came up to the podium about uh, that uh, my views do not necessarily reflect those of Francis Tavern Museum. My answer is I, I absolutely think that Horatio Gates deserves that title. I do. I truly do. Um, traditionally, uh, Gates has been panned because, of course, he was no friend of George Washington, as as you know. He was also embroiled in the so-called Conway Cabal in ways that aren't true. Uh, there's a wonderful book out there called Cabal that uh, by Mark Eric Lind uh, Mark Edward Linder, who really uh, uh, puts a period to that. Uh, a uh, traditional story about collusion of on Horatio Gates's part trying to take Washington's job. That just didn't happen that way at all. Of course, there's uh, also the Newberg conspiracy, Camden. So Gates has a lot going against him. So I think it's easy for the traditional uh, historian to fall into the trap of that Horatio Gates was awful. Because look at these other things. But Benedict Arnold, well, he's great because Benedict Arnold has, has gotten a resurgence over the past, uh, well, I don't know, a long time now, decades, uh, for popularity, for his, his battlefield prowess, his bravery, which was unmatched by any other American commander, I would say, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, any other general, uh, let's say, uh, in, in, the, in the war. Uh, general Arnold performed brilliantly in the battles of Saratoga. He did. Horatio Gates, I wouldn't say performed brilliantly in the battles, but once Arnold is wounded, Arnold goes down to the hospital in Albany, Burgoyne retreats. Gates could have sat there and said, well, my work's done, Albany's safe. He chose to pursue uh, Burgoyne, and he forced Burgoyne to surrender. That wasn't Arnold. Now, you could say that Arnold helped set that up. Sure, sure. Everything's a domino effect, right? So I don't think Gates is doing it alone any more than I think Arnold is doing it alone, but I absolutely agree with the statement that Horatio Gates is truly the victor of Saratoga. Yeah.
And then secondly, Mount Defiance. Uh, why did the Americans not occupy Mount Defiance to avoid yeah. a potential threat to their position? Yeah, that's a great question. This this uh, came up a few times before 1777, in which you had uh, Americans survey the hill, Sugar Hill, Sugarloaf Hill, Mount Defiance, and uh, it's they eventually came to the determination that hosting a garrison on top of Mount Defiance, which is what you would have to do in order to secure it against enemy attack, was untenable. You couldn't host a garrison up there so isolated, so distant, so um, they'd have to sustain themselves somehow. Food and water would be an issue. Um, they just decided that it was untenable. And they also decided that, you know, the British probably won't be doing that anyway if they even get so close. So this has been terrific, as I said. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank and you, Gandhi. If, uh, Thank you. Scott can come up, I'd like to make a brief presentation to you. So, Eric, this is a certificate of appreciation. Uh, we really appreciate uh, your coming down. and. This is uh, something to uh, honor your presence here tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Bangley. <laughs> I'd now like to call on Owen Cloder and uh, Scott Jeffrey to come up to uh, make a presentation for a new member. And Alan, do you want to come up as well? Good evening. Uh, my name is Owen Cloder. I'm the secretary and the chairman of the membership committee of this society. And with me is Scott Jeffrey, our registrar, and Alan Borst, uh, a former officer of this society. Uh, we have one new member to induct tonight. It's been a very good few years for members. We're closing in on 60 over the last few years, so it's been going pretty well. And if uh, you are eligible for membership in the society, I would certainly encourage you to apply. Uh, but for now, would uh, Christopher Borst come up, please? And uh, Christopher was uh, elected today at the most recent board meeting. He is the uh, descendant of Private Jonas Broman, who very much on point with tonight's uh, presentation fought at Saratoga. Uh, in the 8th Albany Regiment. Thank you, Mr. Borst. And... Uh, and so we are very pleased to welcome him tonight. He is a recent graduate of the George Washington University, and uh, we're very pleased to have him as a new member. Congratulations, Christopher. Mr. Jeffrey is now applying the rosette, which is our initiation, right? And he did it without, that is the last free thing you will get from our society. Welcome aboard. And And I think as a postscript, as I understand it, Alan, this would be the 100th anniversary of the, tell us. 
my uh, my father was born on uh, uh, January twenty second, twenty nineteen twenty four. So today would be his hundredth uh, uh, birthday. Right. And I and I'd like to thank my brother John Borst, uh, who works for uh, 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 County Executive Latimer for uh, putting together all the uh, ridiculous paperwork that's entailed and in, uh, in, in uh, supporting the application for membership. It's not that difficult, but it, it, uh, it, uh, it needs to be done. And thank you very much, John. So I think at this point, um, we're gonna call on Father Cullen to uh, give the benediction uh, for those of you joining us for dinner, uh, make your way down to the Washington room. It's on the second floor. Oh, go ahead. Uh, we're a 300 year old building and our planned room uh, did not have heat tonight. So uh, we will be in the Bissell room, which is a much larger room and a much nicer one for everybody. Uh, so please make your way down there. We will be showing you where to go. Thank you. Okay, Father Cullen. Let us pray. Lord of all the nations, we acknowledge your providence in our lives and in the life of our great nation. We know that apart from you, we can accomplish nothing. For as George Washington would write, you are the great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will ever be. And so we beg your blessing and your kind care and protection now and always on all of us and on this great republic. Amen. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Father Cullen. And uh, if you have not bought the book but want to, this is the time to do it and uh, you can get it signed. Thanks very much. So the uh, not, not the but the, uh, I guess so again, the